Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. This week we've been looking at how Jesus doesn't quit on us when we wander and feel misplaced, when things feel so crazy and confused that it's difficult to locate Jesus, when we feel as though we're in the dark, we don't understand, we don't know, full of sorrows, he doesn't quit on us. And this morning, we want to see that Jesus doesn't quit on you, even amid doubts and questions about him. If you type Doubting Thomas into the Urban Dictionary or to Wikipedia online, here's what you'll learn about him. You'll learn that he is a skeptic's hero. You'll be told that Thomas is a rationalist who only believes on the basis of rational empirical evidence. And you will learn that Christians don't like Doubting Thomas uh, because uh, Thomas only wants evidence and doesn't believe by faith. And so is the skeptic's hero and the bane of Christianity. (laughs) I invite you to the scripture to see a different point of view. I want to suggest to you today that Thomas is a mentor and guide, the most seasoned Christian you can turn to, to learn how to deal with doubt in the life of faith. I'm going to say four basic things. When you doubt... Bring all the faith you have. Second, when you doubt, remember, doubt is its own kind of faith. Third, when you doubt, what kind of doubt is it? And finally, what might it be like to receive the welcome of Jesus right in the place of your doubt? Let's take a look together. First, when you doubt, bring all the faith you have. We want to remember that Thomas believes a lot of things. Uh, He doesn't doubt the existence of Jesus. Thomas doesn't doubt the teachings of Jesus. Thomas doesn't doubt the supernatural. He was there when Jesus quieted the storm. He was there when Peter got out of the boat and walked on water. He was there when loaves and fishes were multiplied by Jesus. Thomas was among the 72 on the first missionary uh, endeavor of Jesus as he sent the 72 out. Thomas doesn't doubt the crucifixion. As a matter of fact, that is his problem. He doesn't doubt that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the first century, not in Narnia and not in Middle Earth, but here in the real world. Thomas doesn't doubt any particular thing about the life, existence, and teachings of Jesus. What Thomas doubts is one thing, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is what Thomas doubts. When you think about a friend or loved one that you have and they express their doubts, what is it that they doubt? Or if it's you, how would you name your doubt? For Thomas, it's what we might initially call an intellectual doubt about the resurrection of Jesus. But Thomas, though he doubts that, 
brings a whole lot of other faith, things that he believes. In her uh, helpful book called Longing to Know, scholar Esther Meek, who teaches epistemology, which is how you know stuff and how you know you know stuff. She says there's two basic ways of knowing. You might imagine a pond, and the pond is frozen. And if you want to play hockey on that pond or you want to go skating out on that frozen pond, there are two ways to approach it. One is to look all around and test the entirety of the pond, and you will not step onto it until you know the entire thing can hold. But another way of knowing is to come to the edge of the pond and find a place that's sturdy. See if you can press your weight there. And if you can, you step. And then you try another place. And if it'll hold, you step. Dr. Meek points out that all of us every day, though we would like, we might like to believe that we get through each day because we know the entirety of the pond will hold us, the truth of the matter is all of us get through each day on partial knowledge. All of us every day, if we choose to trust a tweet, why did we trust it? There's something going on, even though we don't know 80% of the information. There's something in the midst of all that you don't understand that causes you to believe you can stand there and trust it. Even the one you love the most, that's in your life the most, you don't know everything about that person. Even if you've been with them 40 years, you don't know everything about that person. Even the ones we love the most, there's a mystery about them with us. And each day, we, on the basis of several factors, decide if we will trust the credibility of their profession for us, and we take a step. Thomas, when he comes to Jesus, has a specific doubt about the resurrection of Jesus, but there's a whole lot of pond he's standing on. After all, he's in conversation with Jesus. He's still there, and he's still in the Christian community with them. There's a lot that he hasn't let go of and that he's standing on. So I have a question for us as we see Thomas bring all the faith he has because Jesus says, you don't have to bring much. It, it can be the size of a mustard seed of faith. It could be a little oatmeal flake, um, a little bit of porridge. It could be a, a quinoa flake of faith, and this is sufficient according to Jesus so I'd like to think about something for a moment. Among the best-known New Testament scholars in our cultural moment is an American named Bart Ehrman. He's not a Christian. He is not a follower of Jesus. He says this, despite the enormous range of opinion, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man known to be a preacher and teacher who was crucified in Jerusalem during the reign of the emperor Tiberius as Pilate was the governor of Judea. Other scholars name several things that they, uh, uh, there's a consensus about in the Greco-Roman 
writings and in Jewish writings outside of the Bible, things like this, the name Jesus, the place and time frame of his public ministry, the name of his mother, the ambiguous nature of his birth, the name of one of his brothers, James, his fame as a teacher, his fame as a miracle worker and sorcerer, the attribution to him of the title Messiah, Christ, his kingly status in the eyes of some, the time and manner of his execution, the involvement of both the Roman and Jewish leadership in his death, the coincidence of an eclipse at the time of his crucifixion, the report of Jesus' appearances to his followers after his death, the flourishing of a movement that worshiped Jesus after his death. All of these things you can find not by reading the Bible, but by reading Jewish and Greco-Roman texts of the time. Here's what I'm saying. If you have a friend who doubts, you might ask them this question. Would you be willing to step out on the pond as far as the experts who do not believe in Jesus will go? Could you go as far as the other than Christian experts go? And if not, why might that be? What would it say about you that you are more cynical than the experts who don't believe in Jesus. I suppose you know an eighth of what they do about their field of history and antiquity, and yet they'll step this far out on this pond. Could you go at least that far? If not, perhaps there's something else going on, not about evidence, but, but we'll come to that in a minute. And so, some of us, right now in this moment, believe more than Thomas do, does. You, you believe all that he believes, and you believe in the re- bodily resurrection of Jesus. But others of us believe less than Thomas does. And that's why he's not a skeptic's hero. He believes a lot. We bring all the faith we have, even as we doubt. Secondly, remember that that's just because doubt is its own kind of faith. Thomas says this, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Notice first, he says, unless I see... So we're not in a, a, un, a uni-dorm discussion at 2 a.m. with pizza in an air-conditioned room or in a kind evening reading Nietzsche and Philosophy 101 and debating around. This is a, a person in the real world in history who is asking for an experience. I must tangibly see. He's not asking for a logical syllogism. He is asking for something experiential. This isn't abstract for him. It is life and death for him. And notice, he says, unless I see. Unless I see. Something's happening here to Thomas. He is skeptical about Jesus. He is skeptical now about his friends. But he is not skeptical about himself. You see that? He has at least 15 or so friends 
uh, likely more who've seen Jesus. But he no longer trusts them. They've been through thick and thin. They have faced difficulty together. They have eaten together, laughed together, cried together, prayed together, served together. But no longer does he see them trustworthy. Now think about that for a moment. If you had, if you had 15 friends, <laughs> some of us introverts, that's stretching it for us. But if, if you had 15 friends and all of them rang you up on the same day and all of them said they saw the exact same thing, you'd at least have to think about that, wouldn't you? But here's what cynicism does. Uh, it is its own kind of faith. Thomas doubts the resurrection, but he believes himself. It's a good question to ask someone, what do your doubts believe? It's a good question for your own heart. What do your doubts believe? Well, I doubt that it's going to rain today because I believe that it's more plausible that it won't because of this, this, and this. I doubt the resurrection of Jesus because I believe what I saw on that cross. We doubt one thing because we believe other things. And sometimes doubt can become a way of life unless I see. And it's understandable because sometimes cynicism is a survival. We've been duped and we've been hurt. And so we come back and we say, I am the only trustworthy one here. And it helps us get through. We don't have to risk our heart anymore. We don't have to get hurt. We're protected. But here's the problem with that kind of doubt and cynicism. At least a couple of them. Number one, if the real thing should stand right in front of you, you now have no resources to see it. Why? Because everything isn't what it appears to be when cynicism is a way of life. So that even if true joy, true beauty, true nobility, true faith, true hope, true love stands in front of you, you'll reject it because you don't trust it. All you trust is yourself. Cynicism helps you survive, but it has no resource to enable you to thrive. Cynicism protects you, but it cannot provide for you. And unwittingly, often in our doubts, we believe ourselves to be the most humble people around. After all, we're just being honest. And honesty matters. But notice, Thomas won't believe anyone now but himself. Unwittingly, Thomas is becoming the most arrogant character in this scene. Because he is saying to the others, 
I hear you saying you saw Jesus. Don't believe it. I'm not going to. The only one trustworthy here who can know what the truth is is me. There's no way out for Thomas in his cynicism. And unwittingly, he's becoming anything but humble. He's becoming arrogant. What do your doubts believe? When you doubt, bring all the faith you have. And when you doubt one thing, notice what you believe. Because it could just be, as someone has said, your doubts need doubting. But how is Thomas brought to this place? And right here, I want you to know this is why we cannot see Thomas as a skeptic's hero, and we must see him as a hero for Christians as Christ has saved him and changed him. Because this isn't the first time we see Thomas, of course. In John chapter 11, someone, a friend of Jesus, has died. His name is Lazarus. And Jesus and his students are some distance off. And word travels to Jesus that Lazarus is dying. And the disciples, the students, are saying to Jesus, we can't go. We can't go there. There's a death threat on your life, Jesus. It's not Peter who stands up and says, let's go die with Jesus. You can read it, John chapter 11. It's not James and John who stand up and say, let's go die with Jesus. It's Thomas. Thomas isn't in a debate society talking about Kant. Thomas has faced the risk of his physical life for identifying with Jesus. He has more faith than I have myself. I I hope I have the faith that he had. He had more faith than Peter in that moment, more faith than James and John in that moment. Let's go die with Jesus. And so the question is, how did he get from let's go die to Jesus from unless I see, I won't believe? And right here, I'd like to ask the question, what kind of doubt is this? And I'd like to suggest to you, this is not merely intellectual doubt. This is the doubt of experience. This is the doubt that comes from pain. It is no trite, shallow doubt. Notice how Thomas pictures it in verse 25. Look at the repetition of the words. Hear it. Hear the passion of vivid memory. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What is vivid? What is haunting his memory what they did to him. What they did to him. The one he loved 
the one he would have died for out of love. That kind of injustice happened in front of everyone. That kind of injustice was a collaboration of church and state. God believers and God deniers collaborating to perpetrate a brutal injustice in front of everyone. And no one stopped it. Not even God. And now you see what kind of doubt are we dealing with here. He is no distant rational skeptic, rationalistic skeptic. He is a person of firsthand experience with the injustices of the real world and how that can be perpetrated on the one you love the most in the world and how that can happen and no one will stop it. That's, that's where his doubt is from. In some some much smaller way of degree. (laughs) Sometimes you have been in love or someone you know has been in love and then they've been hurt. They've stepped out onto the pond and trusted that one they loved and then that person uh, showed that they were thawed and you fell through. And so what you say to yourself is when you're 15 years old and or you're 39 years old, I will never love again. I will never trust again. I will never do that again. Why? The risk is too painful. Or when you see something in your life One of Thomas's best friends, the leader of the church, denied that he even knew Jesus. Thomas watched him take out a sword and hack off a guy's ear right in front of him. Thomas ran. Peter ran. Everybody ran. The fellowship was breaking. All of them were seeing each other in a new light, and it wasn't pretty, and it wasn't positive. It's not the way they imagined each other, and it's not the way they imagined what it would be like to be with Jesus. And Thomas had a friend named Judas, and if you know anything about this story, Thomas and Judas prayed together. They ate together. They suffered together. They learned together. They questioned Jesus together. They grew together. They fought together. They forgave each other. It was Thomas's friend, Judas who be not a spy from Rome that kissed Jesus on the face and betrayed them in front of all of that. And then who were the collaborators of this injustice? Thomas's pastors, the clergy that Thomas grew up with, the synagogues that Thomas attended, the churchgoers and leaders that Thomas was taught the faith by. They're the ones collaborating with Rome to do this injustice. And then he watches clergy who believe in the dark. They won't come forward publicly because they've been told that if they do in John chapter 12, they will lose everything. And so Thomas has watched them stay quiet while he is publicly identified with Jesus and under threat. Everything he thought about God everything he thought about what it would be like to follow Jesus when they first followed him, what they must have imagined the church would be like, what Jesus would be like, what the world would be like with the Son of God in it has crumbled. It is not what he thought it was. And so the mark of the nails 
the mark of the nails. That's what's on his mind. There is a kind of trauma that has a hold on memory. Can you see? Thomas's doubt isn't an intellectual doubt. It's coming from somewhere else. It's coming from raw experience in the real world and the pain that comes from it. Now, how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? What's the first word Jesus says to him in verse 26? Peace. What a fit word for a pained and troubled soul. Peace. Not rebuke, not correction, not woe to you. Peace, Thomas. This kind of peace, this kind of shalom, kind safety, secure rest, mending and healing for the once wounded. And then comes the invitation of intimacy. Come, touch me. Put your hand here. And then, amid the invitation of intimacy and the welcome, it all came in the context of the awkward waiting. Verse 26, eight days later, the peace and the intimate invitation of Jesus didn't come right away. It delayed. And I think, Lord, isn't that just adding insult to injury? Think about it. Let's imagine you're, you're Joanna or Mary or you're James or John and you've seen Jesus alive. And then you tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. I mean, wouldn't you just be like sort of waiting for him to like appear? 24 hours goes by, 48 hours goes by, a third day goes by. How many days before you start to wonder, did I make this up? Is it day five? Is it day seven? By day seven, aren't you starting to be discouraged? No, really, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Really. Didn't we see? We saw, we've seen the Lord. I don't know why he waits to eight days, but thank God he comes on the eighth day. And I wonder if it's something like this. I don't know. Benedict the monk. You know, when someone came to knock on their abbey door and said they wanted to be a monk, do you know what the monks did? Nothing. They didn't come and open the door. They let a person who said they wanted to be a monk, which was to give themselves to this depth of a lifelong vow to a vocation of celibacy and stability and poverty. That's such a deep thing that they'd wait. Even if it rained, even if the weather was there, they would wait a few days. If after two days a person left, obviously they weren't ready. If just a little bit of rain and cold could keep them, they are not ready for the depth of the vow they are talking of. Maybe it's something like that. Eight days. 
But guess what? Thomas hasn't left. He's still at the door knocking. Do you see that? He's still with them. Now, there's a couple of implications I'd like to invite you to think of. If you encounter a friend, a relative, a loved one who leans toward, at least in America, what we would call a culturally progressive Christianity. I don't know what you might call it here. But such a friend will deconstruct their faith, often not just out of intellect, but out of real pain and experience. And they will say they want nothing more to do. And what they will often do is find themselves emphasizing the love of Jesus in some way and wanting to follow the love of Jesus, but not much else. They'll begin to deny the resurrection. They'll begin to do things that Thomas didn't do, and that's what I'd like to say. For all of Thomas's doubt, he does not leave the original apostles. He stays there. And so, for such a dear friend who's earnest and hurting, the, the invitation would be, what would it be like to honestly name this pain and honestly name every question, but to follow Thomas, follow his way toward Jesus. And then there would be a word for those of us that we would refer to as culturally conservative Christians. The number one reason that young people walk away from churches in the West right now is because church is not a safe place to ask their questions. Second reason, church is not a safe place to have anxiety or depression. Young people aren't becoming atheists, even though Christian apologetics would have us believe that because that's the way we keep publishing. But the vast majority of young people aren't leaving God. They're leaving church as a way to find God. They're becoming all kinds of spiritual. Notice those of us on the culturally conservative side where Thomas is with his doubt and where he is with his pain. He is in the Christian community. You don't leave the community to doubt. The best place to doubt is within the community. Why? Because the Jesus community are those who have been apprenticed by Jesus to expect asking, seeking, and knocking. We're the most equipped to understand the miseries of this life and why it is someone would doubt. And we're the most equipped to speak peace and give intimate invitation and enter the awkward waiting of slow progress as we look to Jesus together. Could you imagine if a Christian living room was the safest, most knowledgeable place on the earth for someone who doubted and hurt to go. Could you imagine a congregation like that? The earliest Christians were so taken 
by this peace and intimate invitation of Jesus that they just said it plainly. Jude says it. Have mercy on those who doubt. This was the Christian way. If you experience someone who's doubting, what is that doubter meant to experience from a Christian? Mercy. Mercy. Where did they learn this from? (laughs) The peace speaker, the intimate inviter, Jesus. Now he says, he now asks a question, and this is important. Sometimes when we're in our doubt, we learn from the other Christians that it's okay to ask and seek and knock. This is the place to do it. No question is off limits. Some doubts are understandable. But remember, you're not the only one asking questions. The God you question will have questions for you. And in the context of welcome, peace, intimate invitation, love, community, Jesus asks Thomas a question. Have you believed because you've seen? And right there, someone, a skeptic, will say, how convenient. (laughs) Jesus right now is just uh, making it convenient. You have to believe rather than see. But really what Jesus is doing is sensible, realistic, Almost nobody in the history of the world as recorded in the Bible has seen God. Most of the heroes of the Bible have not seen God. Most of the people who followed God in the Bible have not seen him. They followed on the basis of faith according to the testimony given by those who have. Most of the people alive in the globe in the first century while Jesus was alive didn't know about him, didn't hear about him, didn't see him. And Thomas and the others are about to be invited into a life in which, more typical to life on earth, they will not see him. Most people believe, not because they've seen. Thomas, there will be some people who will be called, put in harm's way, to give their life physically because they will identify with me just as you will, Thomas. And yet, unlike you, Thomas, they will have never seen. And I say, they are blessed, Thomas. And others of us in Christ who will not be put in that position the way Thomas and others are, but we find ourselves believing not because we see Do you know Jesus calls you blessed? Our Lord takes up on the cross something that I'd like you to see as we close. Finally, Jesus stands in the shoes of the doubter. How does Jesus respond when we bring all the faith we can and we learn that our doubt is also a kind of faith. 
And we learn that doubts aren't just intellectual but can flow from experiential, emotional places. How does Jesus respond to us with peace, with the intimate invitation, with the awkward waiting within community, the spoken blessing of faith? But also, he stands in the shoes of the doubter. On the cross, what does Jesus cry? There are many things he says, but one thing he cries out is, my God, my God, why? Why? Have you forsaken me? And right there, Jesus takes up the most ancient question, the most ancient barrier to the faith. If God is so good, why does he stand by as evil happens? And Jesus takes that question up and he gives it voice. Christians know that Jesus died on a cross to save us from our sins. But we often forget that Jesus died on a cross to take up the cry of the sinned against. Why? The one who said, be asking, seeking, and knocking demonstrates it on the cross with God the Father. And so we, would you shame Jesus? Would you tell him, Jesus, don't ask, just believe? Would you say, oh, Jesus, you're struggling in your faith. I'm, that you would ask such a question obviously means you're doubting. <laughs> and dear friend, <laughs> consider that you are now putting yourself in the position of rebuking the Son of God And it ought to be the other way around. He doesn't take his cues from us. We take ours from him. And he stands in the shoes of the pained doubter and says, why? And so we too, following his lead, ask the question. But now notice, some of us, when doubt and cynicism become a way of life, we say, why? And stay there. And then we begin to become angry, bitter, judgmental, dismissive. And we are the only true measure of anyone's life. But Jesus does not do that. He says, why? But then where does he turn? Forgive them. Forgive them. His stepping into the shoes of the doubter doesn't lead him to cynicism. In his sorrow, it leads him to forgive. And then, the very God he questioned is the same God he trusts. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. There is the way of the doubter, Jesus who knew no sin, expressing it for us. We question. We forgive. 
and we are trust ourselves to the very one we question. Because as Peter once said, where else could we go? For you have the answers of eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would help us. Oh, some of us have loved ones, Lord. Help us open our heart. Forgive us. Forgive us. Teach us, mentor us, apprentice us. And those of us in our own pain and sorrow and doubt, oh, speak peace, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.